I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. Live healthy, live blue. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, February 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, law enforcement officers across the state are learning new tactics to combat opioid abuse. we got to be smarter here. We need to prevent it if we can, rehabilitate those that get addicted, and treat those people, and then use incarceration for those who are selling the drug. We'll have more Then find out why some Mississippi families are struggling to get by even after signs of economic recovery. Plus, why a federal administration wants some drivers to step on the brakes and get their cars checked immediately. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Enforcement and prosecutors in Mississippi are learning how to investigate and prosecute death cases resulting from overdoses of prescribed opioids, heroin, and fentanyl. Attorney General Jim Hood, in coordination with the National Association of Attorneys General, hosted a training for state and local law enforcement and local prosecutors Tuesday. The event was designed to provide new techniques to track down the sellers of the drugs and gather enough evidence for a conviction. Hood says the epidemic continues to be the most widespread he's seen. You know, this opioid crisis is uh, unusual for me. I was an assistant attorney general and um, ran the drug asset forfeiture unit. Uh, in our office for five, well, about four years uh, before I became DA. And I served two terms there. So I was there during most of the time when we went through the crack epidemic. And then we went through the meth epidemic in the late uh, 90s and early 2000s. And um, I haven't seen one that affects as large a cross-section of Mississippians and Americans uh, than the opioid crisis because it's some kid that gets hurt playing football uh, all the way to a middle-aged person, somebody in the military, to an elderly person who gets hurt and gets addicted late in life. It's, it's, it's um, probably going to prove to be the most costly of all those epidemics that we've been through, and hopefully we will try to get out ahead of the curve a bit. And that 
involves training because prevention is the cheapest bang for our buck to prevent people from getting addicted in the first place. Hood says incarceration is a last resort, but budget cuts have reduced mental health treatment options. We've tried locking them up and throwing away the key. That's the last resort because it's, it's prevention, treatment, rehabilitation, and then incarceration as a last resort. What we're trying to do is when we recognize somebody with a mental health care issue or an opioid addiction issue, is to put that name with the face or at least have a phone number or someone in the mental health area that you can call who will come get that person and put them uh, in a bed to try to treat them. And that's very important to sheriffs and chiefs of police who have got budgets that are just sucked dry by somebody who has a mental health care issue or an opioid addiction issue that they're inevitably they got to have a tooth pulled or they got to go to the doctor and it's a large expense on those uh, counties and cities that has to house those people. So what we're trying to do is put them in a mental health care bed so that they're treated better uh, and hopefully we can get them off the drugs and law enforcement won't have to encounter that person again. So we get them as, treat them as a patient rather than a, as a, uh, an offender. And so that system will work. We're at the fore, I think, of, of doing that kind of training for our law enforcement. That's our hope. The problem is, is money. And that deals with the legislature. They haven't done enough uh, to provide beds for those who do have a mental health issue in our state or, or an opioid addiction. In fact, they've cut beds to the time when we need them the most. In fact, uh, they closed the best drug treatment facility for men in the state. They closed it down for lack of funding. And that was the one facility in the state. If you put somebody there, then they had to stay. Whereas if you go to a private facility or one of the other community mental health centers, they walk away. So, you know, we're going to have to get it where Medicaid follows that offender uh, who becomes a patient if we get them diverted from, uh, from jail. Despite the high-quality training, General Hood says more funds are needed. You know, we have several actors in, in this that have brought this onslaught on us. Uh, the effects on families that this drug has caused and the effects on law enforcement are trying to enforce it when you've still got all the other drugs out there. You got all the cybercrime stuff going on. You got all these, these issues that you have to deal with of domestic violence and dealing with all these issues. So, this is an important uh, uh, opportunity for those in law enforcement to learn about what we're doing, uh, trying to address the opioid crisis. This training by the National Association of Attorneys General is some of the best training that we uh, have available uh, in the nation. And, and that's been a, a, a great asset for we attorneys general and our assistants. You know, we're, we're, we're moving in the right direction, but we have not done the biggest and most difficult thing, uh, and that is spend money uh, on this crisis. We're not doing the prevention. I mean, the state of Mississippi, the federal government, there ought to be ads on television and in papers and online uh, dealing with prevention. Like, we spent money when, when the tobacco recoveries occurred, like AG spent millions of dollars uh, to talk to kids. And it was, they, they spent millions just figuring out how do you reach them. And you reach them with a kid talking to a kid, not some gray-haired prosecutor like me scared them. And so we need to be spending millions of dollars out there for prevention because that is the cheapest bang for our buck. And, and you know, once they get addicted, it's much more difficult to treat and rehabilitate them. Democratic Attorney General Jim Hood. Coming up, learn why some Mississippi families are still struggling to get by even after signs of economic recovery. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For Moments in Black History, we highlight Mamie Teal, the mother of Emmett Teal, who was murdered in Mississippi on August 28, 1955, at the age of 14, for being accused of inappropriate behavior with a white woman. 
With courage and strength, Mamie Till insisted that her son have an open casket funeral. The pictures of Emmett Till's badly beaten body helped spark the civil rights movement throughout the country. We salute Mamie Till for her courage. This has been MPB's Moments in Black History. On the next Fresh Air, long-haul trucker Finn Murphy. He's logged over a million miles hauling people's belongings across the country. From up in his truck cab, he can see what's happening in the cars below. The behavior that people perform inside their vehicles (laughs) makes it look like they don't think anybody can see. Well, I can see everything. Murphy has a new memoir. Join us. Today at 3 on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A new nationwide report shows some Mississippi families struggling to get by. The annual Prosperity Now scorecard shows, despite positive overall gains, Mississippians at the bottom of the economic ladder often don't share in those successes. Jessica Shapley is vice president of policy at Hope Enterprise Corporation. She tells MPB's Ezra Wall more about how Mississippi stacks up. What they talk about in the scorecard is kind of the national gains that we've had over the years, and some of that's just recovering from the Great Recession. So we're seeing unemployment at a at a at a really big low, and then poverty's been declining at the national level. And we're seeing some of that trickle down to the state level, so unemployment's fairly low right now in Mississippi. But I don't think it shows the full picture of what is happening. So while unemployment may be low, we have a high percentage of residents in the state that are in low-wage jobs. Unemployment is one of the lowest unemployment numbers that we've ever had in Mississippi, which which that is good news. Absolutely. But 37.1, according to this report, 37.1% of jobs in Mississippi are low-wage jobs. Right. And so what that means is that these households aren't in jobs that provide a sustainable living. So most of these families are um, families that don't live above the poverty level. And what we see with low-wage jobs oftentimes is that they don't offer health insurance as well. So these families that are in these low-wage jobs, they're not being able to save. They're not being able to get the health care that they need to work. It's this really holistic approach, which I think the scorecard does a good job of assessing, is that you know, it's it's not only that a person's in a job, but it's in are they in enough of a job that they can save and build wealth over time? Fifty percent of people in Mississippi uh, have employer provided health insurance, and a good percentage more have uh, insurance through a government based program. And then there are there are some thirteen uh, percent or so who don't have any health insurance at all. So that's a pretty startling. Number of people, when you think about uh, almost one and a half out of every 10 people just don't even have any health insurance. So the scorecard not only looks at outcome measures, but it looks at policy measures. Okay. So if we compared our state to a state that, say, expanded Medicaid, then you would ultimately see that they have a higher ranking in the scorecard of the overall assessment. So these big kind of policies that really put money back into people's pockets are really what 
are determining the outcome measures that we see in the scorecard. Setting the politics of it aside for a moment, the, the simple fact of not having expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, what that does is there's this uh, percentage of people who are working but earn too much to qualify for Medicaid and they don't earn enough or they don't have jobs that provide them employer-based health insurance. And so they would have been covered by the expansion of Medicaid, but they're not because Mississippi didn't take part in that. That is correct. What kind of policy issues does Mississippi need to look at to uh, alleviate some of these concerns? So I think that we have these high-level federal and state policy, these public resources that we could utilize as a state, and that could be the earned income tax credit, Medicaid expansion, like we mentioned, Um, These kind of high-level policy issues whose main objective is to really put the earnings that people make back into their pockets. But another approach that we're kind of looking at is how do we bring private resources? How do we we address community development at the local level to improve these outcomes that these underserved people and communities are experiencing? So it's kind of a two-pronged approach in the interim while we're trying to pursue public policy outcomes that improve financial wealth, how do we go on the local level and work with communities as well? One of the things that we hear uh, from the leadership in our state is their reticence to do things such as expand Medicaid is that they they argue that they wouldn't be solutions at all, that they'd create a dependency upon government and government programs to raise people out of their economic distress. So how what is the importance then of of relying on the private sector to kind of help with these things and what can be done to encourage more of a public-private partnership in alleviating some of these concerns? So I think like the the policies that you alluded to are really based in the safety net and I'm getting to the safety net. And I think one the important takeaway from that is that these type of policy issues, whether it be SNAP or TANF, they're temporary and it's just giving that people the ability to get ahead in the interim. We should mention SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, otherwise known as food stamps in a lot of circles, and TANF is Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which offers a cash benefit for low-income families on a temporary basis. Right. And these are – so these families that experience financial hardships, these are policies that can get them ahead in the interim until they can get on their feet. So what we're looking at at the – local level is so Hope Policy Institute is embedded in Hope Enterprise Corporation, which is a community development financial institution. And one of the things that we're looking at closely is how we bring in philanthropic dollars. How do we access capital so that minority-owned businesses or schools or whatever the needs are of a community, how can we bring the resources to them in, in the form of capital to these communities? What's something about the report that you would like to bring to the attention of our listeners? One of the great things about the scorecard is it's a really holistic picture of what economic mobility looks like at the state level. So it's broken down by five issue areas. So it's looking at issues like housing, jobs, healthcare, education, financial assets, and income. And I think it's important to realize that these are all interrelated. So if people aren't getting the education that they need, then they can't get into a higher paying job, perhaps. And then it's healthcare, And once they're in that job, are they getting the savings that they need so they can build equity in their home? So I think the key takeaway is that you really can't look at these outcome measures or policies 
in a singular field. They're all interconnected. We've been speaking with Jessica Shapley, who's the vice president for policy at the Hope Policy Institute. Jessica, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. More information about the scorecard is available at prosperitynow.org. Coming up, a critical message to Mississippi drivers. Find out why some cars need to be parked immediately. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Today is Valentine's Day, so join us on the next Everyday Tech as we discuss online dating and how technology has changed the way people find romance. We'll discuss everything from dating sites and apps to safety precautions and more. Love is in the air on Everyday Tech, today at 10, only on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. My father had Parkinson's, my mama had Alzheimer's, and my sister had multiple sclerosis. I'm concerned about neurological diseases. Is there a uh, test or a scan or a drug study or something? We do know that certain diseases can be inheritable. For instance, Alzheimer's can be inherited the early onset form, but most Alzheimer's is not inherited. Parkinson's disease is rarely inherited, and the other neurological conditions that you mentioned are usually not inherited either. However, we don't do screening tests for these diseases unless there are symptoms. We feel now that the majority of these neurogenitor diseases probably reflect a combination of uh, some environmental thing and a propensity which is not truly an inherited condition. For more health tips and medical information, listen for Southern Remedy each weekday at 11, where the doctors are always in. For MPB Think Radio, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians who drive vehicles with certain Takata airbags will want to take note. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration may be urging you to step on the brakes immediately until you can get that airbag checked. Other airbags could be at risk as well. The issue has claimed 15 lives and caused at least 240 injuries across the country. Heidi King is Deputy Administrator at NHTSA. She tells us why it's urgently important that all highways high-risk airbags are tracked down and replaced immediately. You know, there's the broader recall that includes lots of manufacturers and 50 million airbags in 37 million cars. But Monday, there was announced that some of those recall airbags are do not drive. So it means that the sense of urgency is such that instead of waiting and calling and making an appointment, people should stop driving the Ford Mazda and the Ford um, Ranger vehicles and the 2006 B-Series Mazdas 
and call and make an appointment to have it towed to the dealership for a free airbag replacement. That's very alarming. Literally do not drive it anymore. That's right. For certain 2006 Ford Ranger vehicles and certain Mazda 2006 B-Series vehicles. You know, most of our airbags are safe. I have an airbag in my car. My daughter drives an old car with an airbag. An airbag saves thousands of lives every year. But under the Takata recall, um, there are many airbags that are unsafe. And in particular, there is this batch of airbags that could explode even in a low-speed collision. We have had, because of these airbags, um, 15 deaths in the U.S. and allegedly, you know, more than 240 injuries. So the urgency is high. And one of the challenges is that people may not be getting the news. So we urge people not only to check their own vehicles on our website, but to talk to their friends and neighbors. Is Takata a common producer of airbags? It has been one of the larger producers of airbags, and they used a method to produce them that over time, when those airbags were subject to cycling temperatures and hot, humid temperatures, the propellant eroded. So the Takata-manufactured airbags have had an issue. They can be replaced with safe airbags. And quite frankly, some of the newer airbags are, uh, don't present that elevated risk, but it's the 2001 and 2002 Hondas, um, 2002, 2003 Acuras that are more risky. And now, of course, the Ford Rangers from model year 2006 and the Mazdas B-Series from 2006, where we're saying don't even drive them. Um, Ford and Mazda have asked people to keep them at home. They'll send a tow truck. They'll replace the airbags for free. All recall replacements are always free. But in this case, they're actually saying don't drive. We'll send a tow truck. Heidi, can these explode at any given time, or would it happen if you hit the brakes hard or some other normal kind of activity in the car or truck? What we've seen is that they can explode at even a lower speed collision. So, for instance, a collision that is low speed where the airbag would normally not deploy, these airbags might deploy. That's what we've seen. I don't think we've seen evidence of them you know, exploding when they're not um, triggered by an accident. But we do see that sometimes even a lower speed collision or crash can launch the airbag unsafely. And that's why we're concerned. There have been deaths associated with this. Why can they kill someone driving or having a low speed accident? Well, there are the safe airbags, which is most of the airbags in most of our cars. And there are the defect airbags. So most of our airbags are safe and save lives, but there are about 50 million currently in our cars, in about 37 million different cars, that have a defect. There's something wrong with how they were built, and so they're not deploying properly and safely. You know, a normal safe airbag, when you have a collision at a certain speed, will deploy and safely give you that, you know, kind of a pillow airbag to help cushion your body and protect you. But with these 50 million airbags, when they deploy, they explode in an uncontrolled manner, and there are shards of metal. And that's why they're creating harm, is they're, first of all, deploying at times we wouldn't have expected them to deploy. And second of all, they explode in an uncontrolled manner, and they release shards of metal into, quite frankly, the driver's face and chest. And so we have to get the recalls completed. We've only completed about 51% in the United States. It's critically urgent that people go to our website, www nhtsa.gov slash recall. Um, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. 
is the agency. We have a tool there where consumers, drivers, car owners can enter their VIN and see what outstanding recalls exist on their car and then take action. I also would urge that drivers, consumers, and neighbors look out for one another because not all of us keep the same address and tell our auto dealership where we live. So, you know, the recall notice may not find some of us. So we can talk about it with our neighbors and friends and make sure that everybody is aware, goes to the website, and checks for open recalls. Heidi King is Deputy Administrator for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Heidi, thank you so very much. Thank you so much. Please be safe out there. For more information, visit nhtsa.gov. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Fix It 101. Then at 10 o'clock, Everyday Tech. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. The 30th Annual Governor's Arts Awards, the Mississippi Arts Commission's recognition of the state's artistic and cultural heritage, will air on MPB Think Radio and MPB Television on Thursday, February 15th at 8 p.m. This year's ceremony, held at the Old Capitol Building in downtown Jackson, honored five recipients for noteworthy contributions to the arts in the state of Mississippi. On Thursday, February 15th, on MPB Think Radio and MPB Television.